Welcome to the Notion Club podcast. I'm Justin Hall, and this is episode 10. You are listening to Symphony Number no. 7, the Leningrad Symphony, composed by Dmitry Shostakovich and here performed by the Cleveland Orchestra under the direction of Franz Velsermost. Shostakovich composed this work in 1941 during one of the most brutal and gruesome events of World War II, the Siege of Leningrad. It is not hyperbole to argue that the story about this piece of music, this symphony, is a drama surpassing any other artistic tale of the 20th century. It has the scope of a Tolstoy novel, the pyrotechnical majesty of war, the intimacy of romance and family life, the thrilling suspense of espionage, the horrors of apocalypse, and it demonstrates the most ennobling virtues of humankind, but also the darknesses of the human heart that can turn men into monsters. If this story were fiction, you would think it too absurd to take it seriously, But it is not fiction, and proves once again that even the most melodramatic and exaggerated fictions are only sideshows to the main theater of history. The story of the Leningrad Symphony by Dmitry Shostakovich is perhaps most beautifully and magnificently told in the book Symphony for the City of the Dead, by author and National Book Award winner M.T. Anderson. In today's discussion, M.T. Anderson joins me to talk about his book and about the incredible story of Shostakovich creating music during the siege of Leningrad. But first, allow me to set the stage. It's 1941, and the citizens of the city of Leningrad in Russia are trapped between a contradiction of evils. 
For the past nearly 20 years, Russia had been suffocating in the iron fist of Marxism as played out in Stalin's demonic games. In the 1930s alone, more than six and a half million people had been killed before even the start of World War II, killed by the powers of the Soviet Union. These millions had either been arrested and executed in the Great Terror, or sent to the Gulag labor camps to make reparations for their middle-class privilege, where they died under forced labor and starvation, or other millions starved in the multiple famines that plagued the Russian countrysides, famines which were the very program of collectivized farming, in which the property and the harvests of farmers were seized by Soviet authorities, such that neither farmers nor the people who depended on them had anything to eat, anything, that is, besides each other, and the corpses of those who had already died. In one photograph from that era, a woman feeds the body of her daughter to her son. All this was performed by the Soviet authorities in the name of communism, in the name of all that is heroic, bright, and beautiful. And of course, there is nothing more beautiful than relinquishing your freedom and liberty and rights in order to help others. This was an effort to build a true human utopia. The Soviet Union promised their people, we will help you be virtuous. But come 1941, and another specter of evil had risen up in continental Europe. Adolf Hitler had already brought his neighboring powers to their knees. First, Poland had fallen to the devastating blitzkriegs of the Wehrmacht, Hitler's army. And then, after tramping through neutral Belgium, Hitler rolled up into France, meeting comically little resistance, and, in short order, like everyone before her, France knelt in submission. But for Hitler's megalomaniacal ambition, this was not enough. He sought another prize, the conquest of Russia, his peaceful co-worker, a prize that could only be sought by a delusional egomaniac. History had proven that invading Russia was an all-but-impossible feat, or one too costly to be worth the attempt. Why would Hitler risk everything in a conquest that would indeed become a turning point against him in the war? If Hitler had not invaded Russia, it is hard to say how long he would have stayed in power. It was Russia that would deliver the deadliest blows to the Wehrmacht. In part, this was because Hitler's strategic vision was outdated. He still viewed the world largely through the lens of the Great War, in which Russia had submitted quite swiftly and France had been the stubborn enemy. But now, using his new methods of warfare, that stubborn enemy, France, had been defeated in a matter of weeks. In fact, so had all his other victims. 
The Blitzkrieg could not be resisted. The Wehrmacht was invincible. Russia would fall, just like everyone else. Or so Hitler thought. And in the words of Winston Churchill, on June 22nd, 1941, At four o'clock this morning, Hitler attacked and invaded Russia. The German army grew up in immense strength, and their air fleets and armored divisions slowly and methodically took up their station. Then, suddenly, without declaration of war, without even an ultimatum, the German bombs rained down from the sky upon the Russian cities. The German troops violated the Russian frontiers. And an hour later, the German ambassador called upon uh, the Russian foreign minister to tell him that a state of war existed between Germany and Russia. And thus began one of the bloodiest catastrophes in a war full of bloody catastrophes. By September, Hitler's army had fought its way to the city of Leningrad, once called St. Petersburg, turned Petrograd, turned Leningrad, a city known as the cultural and artistic capital of Russia. And then began a siege by Hitler's army against the city, a siege that would last 900 days, in which the citizens of Leningrad were caught between a contradiction of evils, Hitler on one hand, Stalin on the iron other. They would be continuously blasted by bombs, terrorized by the shrill screams of air raid sirens, killed by explosions, or decaying from starvation if they did not join bands of cannibals. And here, in this scene from hell, we find our little trembling friend, the composer, Dmitri Shostakovich, who is still jotting away little squiggles of ink on staff paper, creating, of all things and now of all times, the sounds of music, out of which one work, the Leningrad Symphony, would sound forth from his beleaguered home city and escape into the world as a clarion call, not of death or defeat, but of hope and triumph. Joining me to discuss this incredible story about Shostakovich 
as told in his book, Symphony for the City of the Dead, is author M.T. Anderson, uh, who, as I said, is the winner of the National Book Award, and also author of several novels, included among them The Astonishing Life of Octavian Nothing. So first, welcome to the Notion Club, and maybe we can start with just your background in music. I I know at one point you were a music critic. I was. I don't have any official training in music. I've just always been really uh, sort of obsessed with, uh, with music, especially music of the past. And so, of course, your book, Symphony for the City of the Dead, is about Shostakovich, his seventh symphony called Leningrad, which he wrote during the siege of Leningrad. Maybe let's start with Shostakovich. How, how was it that you struck upon him as a composer and, and this story, which at one point you, you said it was stranger than fiction. If, if you were to fictionalize it, that you couldn't make it any more absurd than it already was. Absolutely, right. And I mean, I've always loved his music. So from the time I was a teenager, you know, uh, I mean, his music, I think, really appeals to the young because it is very um, emotionally raw at points. Mm -hmm. Whatever you think about its irony or whatever else, it also is strangely uh, like vulnerable and open about its suffering. Mm -hmm. So um, I I had always loved like, you know, the um, the eight string quartet or the symphony that it became, like that was a thing that I listened to when I was 17 or 18 and it blew my mind, you know what I mean? (laughs) There just was such a sense of like, of anguish there, but like the willingness to speak about it too. And, you know, it's so interesting because now I know that piece inside and out. I've read a full, you know, sort of monograph just talking about the structure of that piece. And I understand that it has all sorts of quotations in it that, of course, as a 17 or 18-year-old, I could not at all uh, recognize. And yet it has an incredible potency to it. And so I think that that is, is really a testament to him and to the fact that his that his power as a composer does go beyond his historical position and whatever his symphonies might mean. But of course, with the Seventh Symphony, it was sort of what it meant originally that, that interested me. I mean, I, I don't remember where I originally heard the story, but I uh, it must have been in like a liner note or a uh, like the program booklet or something. But anyway, this, there was this incredible story about the piece being written in Leningrad as the city was being besieged. And then the fact that it was reduced onto microfilm and smuggled out of the country. So, so it was uh, flown to Tehran, driven across the deserts of the Middle East, and then put on another plane in Cairo and carried across the Atlantic and brought to America, where it was once again enlarged and then performed by the NBC Symphony Orchestra as a way of drumming up support among Americans of the Soviet for the Soviet cause. Because, of course, as you can imagine, Americans in that period were not um, otherwise particularly uh, sympathetic to the Soviets. And, you know, it, it, there was a lot of negotiation going on within the country, within our country, about, you know, like, lend-lease, um, how should we help these people, should we help them, will they take advantage of us after the war, all these different questions. So anyway, this was supposed to say to the American public, here is um, both a symbol of the, the suffering, but also the heroism of the Russian people. You can understand that their struggle is your struggle. That was sort of the propaganda angle of this piece in this country. So that really interested me. And so I decided, well, you know, 
The other stuff about the symphony, um, things like the fact that the piece was performed in Leningrad itself during this sort of this time of starvation by a, a kind of a soot blackened orchestra suffering from starvation, uh, collapsing during the rehearsals, that kind of thing, and it's performed there in that city while the city was being shelled and broadcast across no man's land towards the Germans to say, you think that we are an inferior people, that the Slavs are an inferior people. You think you can reduce us to nothing, to want. You, can, you think we can, you can turn us into animals. And yet, in the midst of this, the worst you can do to us, we are still making music. So that was incredibly powerful, too. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll do a book that combines these. And it turned out that no one had ever done any work on that microfilm transfer to the US. So I ended up not merely writing the book on this, but also um, I've done a, a couple of academic articles now for um, Musical Quarterly and for DSCH, which is the, the Journal of Shostakovich Studies and that kind of thing. One on the transfer itself, the microfilm transfer itself, and the other on um, all these weird attempts in 1942 and 1943 to make the symphony into a Hollywood movie, which was tried several times. You know, they wanted to make it into kind of like the Soviet Fantasia or something. Anyway, um, so I read an article about that. Yeah, the just the story about the expedition of the microfilm all over the world. I mean, it's sort of like Beethoven meets Indiana Jones or something. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, right, and it's just, it's kind of amazing. Like, you look at that and you're like, Imagine a time when a symphony uh, is considered to be important enough, you would treat it like you would a, you know, the plans for a nuclear submarine or, you know, part of the Enigma code or something, you, you know, to actually transport it in that way. It really shows the power of you, th this music to the people of that time. Mm -hmm. And I, I love your approach in the prologue you know, suspense is all about withholding information and, and just those first few pages of not knowing what's on this microfilm and it could be anything. And in fact, that importance being transferred to the symphony, which it was, you know, it's totally true, was one of the most important documents of the war, so. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's really interesting because, I mean, I have to admit that I am a real booster for what we now call classical music. Mm. Um, you know, I, that does not mean that I think that it is any way superior to uh, other forms of music, but I do particularly love it. I, I love its complexity. I love its history. And, you know, it's now not culturally central. It's reasonably culturally irrelevant, in fact. Mm. So it's fascinating to look at a time when, for example, I mean, in, during World War II, uh, surveys were done of American soldiers in the field. And um, uh, classical music was overwhelmingly one of the things they wanted to hear. It was more popular, for example, than what we would now call country music. It was more popular than certain than, than a lot of jazz, for example. Um, you know, and that's culturally changed, and you know, the culture has to change, and that's that's fine. But it's just it's interesting to me to remember a time when there was a real. Um, a real desire to listen to bolero in the middle of the jungles of the Philippines. Or in the case of Leningrad Symphony, a kind of bolero in the middle of the first movement. Right, oh, yeah, great point, great point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sakovich, when he was writing it, was worried that people would compare that, the so-called invasion theme, to the bolero. And it's amazing, to, you know, talking about the relevance of classical music, two aspects of this. 
first of all, the just as you mentioned with the eighth string quartet, in a sense with Leningrad, just the the quotations of other pieces, and if not explicit quotations, then you know at least conventions of music that the audience at the time all understood. I'm thinking of it's a inspiring part of the of I think the chapter Life is Getting Merrier where Shostakovich has written his fifth symphony and the symphony is performed. Uh, you describe, uh, in fact, the last time I, I read this, it gave me chills, th- how th- as the last movement was coming to its end, the audience started standing up. And then at the end, it was just this uproarious, exalted response. And the relevance of that music to that people at the time. Um, well, in particular because of the suppression of language. Mm-hmm. And your podcast focuses on you know, like language and music. And this, I think, is a really interesting case because, I mean, so that piece, the Fifth Symphony, was written sort of right towards the tail end of what we now call the Great Terror, where Stalin was uh, and his and his minions were um, imprisoning hundreds of thousands. We don't even, we still don't have an accurate count, and, and executing hundreds of thousands of people for nothing at all. And Shostakovich's piece was seen as somehow giving them a way to mourn. We now, when we listen to it, tend to think of like the first movement and that kind of thing, but for them, that slow movement, which is very much a dirge and even briefly quotes um, funeral music, you know, that was the thing that really, uh, that got people because they had not been allowed to cry in public. You know, there's a famous quote by a, a poet's wife about how back in those days, if someone came in the middle of the night and took your husband away, the next day at work, you could not cry because that would show that you disagreed with the arrest. You could not smile because that would be suspect. So there was this sort of thing where you constantly are holding yourself emotionally at bay. And, and in a way, Shostakovich, he's allowed people to finally weep together in a, in a vast room. Mm-hmm. So the response was explosive. You know, the, supposedly the applause lasted for half an hour. He was ushered off the stage and rushed away by his friends who worried that there would be some kind of a riot and that he would be implicated. So, yeah, I, but it, it really is fascinating because it's like it gets to the heart of that question of how does music mean anything at all? Hmm, right. And the other aspect of this relevance idea is from the leaders of the Soviet Union at the time, relevance was you know the question how was it relevant to the doctrines of stalin you know and that was decided at their will and whim in uh, in the midst of all of these contradictions it seemed about socialist realism you know and i i love the part in in uh the book where you describe all of the ways shostakovich was criticized he was criticized for not being emotional enough and being too emotional not being sensitive enough not being uh, brutal enough, that dis- depicting collective farming as cartoonish, and then on the other hand, depicting uh, life as too brutal. You know, there's no way to be right. And I think at, at one point in another context, one person said, everyone has enough dirt on them essentially to be arrested and, and carried away. You know, the, the criticism was endless. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about socialist realism and what Shostakovich had to contend with as an artist writing under remarkably strict creative rules. 
Right. Well, it's it's really fascinating because if um, so in the 1920s there was this wild Russian experimental school in uh, what became Leningrad and also in Moscow, where just like you know, I mean, you had people flirting with ideas of um, atonality and electronic music and microtonal music and all this kind of thing, where it's like, they, and their, their idea was, we are the proletariat, we're gonna destroy the past. The past of sort of Tchaikovsky and that kind of thing, we're just gonna bust it and we're gonna create this new art. And it went along with a lot of the, like the visual arts. So, you know, people like uh, Kandinsky and Malevich, who are doing these sort of very geometrical things. And there's something like, we're not going to paint things. We're going to paint shapes that have emotions, you know, that kind of thing. You know, like, so very similar, really exciting time. And Shostakovich grew up during that experimental moment. And, um, and if that had continued, I seriously think that the world's description of musical history would have been fundamentally different because there would be a whole other set of names we'd be including when we look for our, you know, our founders of atonality or whatever else. But that's not what happened. Instead, what happened was Stalin got, and the party got very nervous around the late 1920s. Um, and they started to crack down at first kind of, there was a, a sort of a soft crackdown. And then later on, a very kind of directed one where, um, you know, composers, just like the, you know, there was also this school of, um, of experimental writers, you know, uh, people like Daniel Harms, Boris Pilniak, uh, Viktor Shklovsky, Bulgakov. Anyway, all you know, these all, these artists, uh, writers, artists, composers, all of them suddenly encountered huge friction from the uh, from the party, and it became incredibly dangerous to pursue the experimental route that people had gone through in the 1920s. So all these exciting possibilities for a new art, boom, had to be slammed shut. And so, you know, Shostakovich is just the most famous example of a trend which happened in general. Like if you hear Shostakovich's second and third symphonies, which are rarely recorded, they are very, very experimental. They're still tonal and that kind of thing, but there is no melodic development. The whole idea of those symphonies is it's just like linear progression, one thing after another, without, they, they, you know, one episode builds into it, never, you never have returned. It's like the opposite of the Russian symphony of the 19th and early 20th century, with, where, you know, not only do you have return within one movement, but oftentimes, you know, like in Tchaikovsky, the, the theme will come back in the last movement to start, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so Shostakovich has, writes this, this kind of sprawling fourth symphony which is just in, an insane piece. It really takes a while to kind of get your mind around it. And um, it's, it really sounds like, um, like if you've stumbled across the, um, the gutted body of Mahler in a ditch. <laughs> kind of what it sounds. And it's, a, it's an amazing piece, but it also is incredibly dark. There's no, like it's, it's very hard to determine a structure. And if there is a structure, it's more just kind of like every time things seem to be normalized, something hideous happens. That seems to be the real structure. Anyway, so he writes this piece, and as it happens during the writing of the piece, he is denounced. And friends had been too. So there's a wonderful composer that few people listen to anymore called Gavril Popov, who um, was a friend of Shostakovich's. And Popov, he wrote this magnificent kind of monstrous first symphony. 
which is very similar to Shostakovich's first. So sprawling, huge, it's a beast, right? But the idea is that like um, he, it was felt to not be uh, uplifting in the way that it was supposed to be. So the, the problem with um, statements about Soviet realism or socialist realism is that they say two things. One is that it should be realistic, but two is that it should therefore depict the exciting, gorgeous future of the Soviet state. Now, of course, what that you know misses is the fact that if you do not believe that that is realism, that, it, that it's realistic to, to think that the Soviet state is going to end up some, someplace uh, worthwhile, then that's the, the problem. But as you said, anything could be found anti-Soviet. Some composers who did, you know, perform the, the rights of Soviet realism uh, successfully would be like uh, Lev Knipper. So Lev Knipper, totally interesting guy. He's a guy who uh, we know now he was not just a composer. He was actually a, an agent of the secret police. So we know that he, and for example, on the playwright Chekhov, he was Knipper's uncle. So Knipper, as a young man, got installed as a composer with, at the theater where Stanislavski, you know, that's the Stanislavski method is named after. He got assigned to be a composer at that theater. Well, we know now that what he was really doing was acting as an informant about Stanislavski. Um, and he was later, like, uh, supposed to assassinate Hitler, and he, they had this whole plan worked out. Anyway, so this is this, is this guy, Liv Knipper. Now, his most famous symphony is called The Young Communist Soldier and is a, a depiction of the young, like the Young Communist League, which is the specific band of, of young people going out into the countryside in the early 30s and forcing farmers to collectivize. Now, in fact, this was an incredibly brutal thing. There were uprisings, uh, people were shot, people were executed, you know, incredibly brutal. But of course, the symphony is totally triumphant and includes uh, a sung chorus which is repeated throughout the piece, which has actually become a song that the Russians don't even know now. If you talk to the average Russian, they'll know this song, but they won't know that it began its life in a, a symphony of the 1930s. You know, dun, 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 dun. So, you know, it's this kind of rousing tune, but it also was originally connected to specifically a piece that was saying, you know what's going to be great when the Young Communist uh, League arrives at your town and starts to, to um, arrest and kill the most powerful peasants. That's happening sort of at the same time as Shostakovich is struggling with his fourth symphony and with his, his opera, Lady Macbeth, and, um, and Gavriel Popov, he creates this big sprawling symphony that Shostakovich loves, and then is told after the first performance, this will never be performed again. And composers increasingly were told that. This will, what you're doing will never be performed again. Shostakovich's Fourth Symphony never performed, well, not never, I mean, they were told, he was told it would never be performed. It was performed, you know, decades later, but he could not have it performed. Composer, like the, the composer Mosolov was thrown in a camp. And there's this radical shift. All these people who were experimental in the 1920s, and it's like a thrilling time to hear their music by the late 30s are writing like folk music inspired suites 
and really, really kind of like anodyne smooth jazz type music. Not does it's not literally smooth jazz, but it's the it's the um, modernist version of smooth jazz. It's kind of like it's basically it sounds like it could have been written around 1900. You can swallow it very easily. It has just enough hint of modernism in it. You don't feel like you're being made fun of, but it really is in many cases incredibly bland. And um, and. Frankly, composers got off easily. Writers were usually killed um, for the same kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so Socialist Realism, it was uh, published, I think, in 1934 as a, the, the Composers Union published a manifesto that sort of described the, the aesthetic philosophy, essentially, of what composers should, should base their music on, the, st- the strictures in which they should compose. And, and this, of course, applied to all kinds of artists as well. And at, at one point in the in the book, you mentioned that uh, Stalin needed a way to feed the people communism and that the, the people and, and there's all this talk about music for the people weren't really the ones to make up their own choice about what they wanted to listen to. The, this was to be fed to them. And, you know, socialist realism and the philosophy behind it seems very seductive and it's kind of compassion for the people because it's dressed up in you know for the for the the common the the dispossessed the poor where at the same time what's behind the philosophy is is a view of the lowly and the poor that sees them without the ability to love great things to love higher forms of music that sees them essentially as, as, a, as a breed of inhuman creatures that may well be exterminated as they were. So it's simultaneously, you know, a, a poor view of the lowly, but also a kind of legal speak with which the great terror was possible. So we could explore the contradictions of, of socialist realism endlessly. What I find fascinating about the contradictions specifically is there's something about Shostakovich's character that seems paradoxical. At, at one point, one of his friends is describing him. You know, he seems sort of weak and, and nervous, but that's not the whole of his character. He's also despotic, I think was a word, and, and, and strong and brave even. And this kind of almost contradictory characters within one person that seems to come out in his music all the time as irony. Maybe we can discuss that a little bit in the Seventh Symphony in terms of socialist realism, in terms of Shostakovich's own compositional method. We can delve into the, to the work a little bit, the, the symphony itself. And as we discuss the music... You know, it would be helpful to hear excerpts from the music itself. So I've asked my colleague, Dr. Daniel Overly from Indiana University, to play excerpts on the piano to illustrate our talking points so we can hear the motivic and melodic material more clearly, since sometimes it really is easier to hear the essential motivic and melodic ideas when simplified to a piano transcription. So as we talk about the music, we'll have these excerpts to give life to musical ideas that could otherwise be too abstract to grasp onto. Maybe use the the work to sort of describe what's going on with the the invasion of the Wehrmacht, what that middle section in, in the first movement sort of signifies. One of the interesting things about it 
and about the argument about how music means things mm. is that in some ways that the piece demands knowledge of sonata allegra form which then was reasonably common among a certain educated uh, stratum, but now, of course, is incredibly obscure. And um, so, you know, I, I think that it's interesting to say, as some people tried to even at the time, American critics at the time hated this symphony because it seemed to mean things and said, uh, you know, we need to listen to this music without thinking about the, the, the circumstances that produced it. But I mean, I guess part of my uh, my objection to that is, in order to understand a mu music's meaning, you always are bringing knowledge to it, whether it's knowledge of the the composer's circumstances or knowledge of sonata allegra form, and whether it's it's working with that or against that. And you know, and it's it's an interesting thing. Like um, among younger composers, I think there's often this question: How much do we talk to an audience ahead of time about what we were intending? Because, you know, you can say, I just want the notes to mean something to people. But at the same time, then what do you do? How do you feel when your um, Aunt Maggie comes up to you and says, well, that was lovely. It sounded just like the, the soundtrack to Blood Feast. <laughs> like, I just, um, I, um, so anyway, so with Shostakovich, okay. So the Seventh Symphony is essentially a super traditional sonata form symphony. So the first movement um, you know, it sets things up absolutely in a doctrinaire way. You start with this kind of striding theme um, in C that sort of comes in, it's sort of like uh, very, very optimistic. It's, it's sort of the city celebrating itself. You know, here we go. second theme, a second theme which is contrasting in character as it's supposed to be. It's a sort of a pastoral theme that begins. Um, so you have all of the, the setup that you think you, you need to then have a, a straightforward development section where these two things will come together. Well, instead, you don't. 
Instead, he abandons all of the material in that first section and to, to instead insert this incredibly um, irritating little march. You know, this little march that dun, 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 dun. sounds almost like this is a march that sounds like um something that you know almost like kids would use to tease each other like a march for toy soldiers or something exactly right um I, some of the first critics said that it sounded to them like mechanical rats <laughs> and it's just it's a really really goofy theme and yet it's repeated again and again and again and each time with greater and greater and greater intensity until finally it is a huge march it is hugely destructive there are a lot of sort of like um you know some tonal clashes going on in the harmony and um and um it and then finally it sort of explodes at this at this great moment So in a way, it's it's like essentially uh, there is in a sense a portrait here that's being drawn. This is what people certainly thought at the time. Mm -hmm. At the time, almost everyone thought what you are hearing is here is the city of, of Leningrad in its pride and its glory. Around it is the beautiful lands of the Russian uh, north. And then suddenly here come the Germans, and uh, and you hear them in the distance. They seem very distant, and yet somehow they create this this catastrophe, which then leads to a long period where, yes, finally, instead well, instead of a sort of a recapitulation, you have the themes from the beginning recapitulated, but now they are totally sort of distorted and miserable. So the um, the pastoral theme now is kind of like sort of stretched and and becomes a, a lament instead. Oh, and then at the very end of the movement, once again to kind of insert a sense of, of meaning, you come to a point of stability and to a sort of a, a stable cadence, I suppose. But then in the distance, you hear a very faint, deadly echo of that march starting again. Okay, so there you have a thing that you can say, it really fits very easily into ideas of, uh, you know, how symphonic form could then also become a form invested with meaning. But I mean, it could be argued though, uh, so um, the Germans did not in fact start demurely far away and without a sense that they were gonna be a threat. They, you know, they, uh, on June 22nd, uh, 1941, they launched a massive attack, the largest invasion force ever seen in Europe coming east towards Russia to try to uh, to defeat the country. So it's not like it was sort of like a cute thing in the distance. So the argument that these people would make 
about this being Stalin would be, well, um, his rise is a little bit more like that. At the time when Lenin dies, Stalin is just one of, of several possible successors. He's not seen as a particularly gifted person or as someone who necessarily is going to go far. And so um, I think that, in fact, if you want words to um, somehow approve your sense of the symphony, the best, which I don't know that you do want or that, that one wants, the best thing you can do is something that Shostakovich said to a neighbor right around the time he finished it, which was that it was about war and the oppression of the human spirit in whatever form they arose. Mm -hmm. Even though people have heard all these specific things in it, is this supposed to be a gunshot? Is this supposed to be tanks or whatever? He was much more general about it, you know, as if, no, this is kind of like an ugly thing within the human that grows. Mm -hmm. You know, and that, those are my words. So once again, here I am helplessly interpreting despite the fact that I shouldn't, um, you know, so. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's almost a problem immediately if you come to a piece of music and try and interpret it in terms of representation because it's an expressive form of art and it almost defeats the purpose in some sense getting too bogged down in the particularities of what it might mean because as you mentioned with uh, the fifth symphony giving giving the people a chance to weep together that what was presented was was something in universal terms it was if it is a story, it's a universal parable that everyone can relate to. So in some sense, it can be about Leningrad and, and, and the particularities of, you know, the tanks rolling in. But it also is very much about more than that or, or beyond that as well. The development, you, you talked a, a little bit about the, the sonata form using a formal structure to, to tell a story. You know, that the development is such an odd thing in this piece because typically with with developments in, in classical forms, well, for one thing, you take the themes from the first section, you take the, the musical ideas right. and you develop them motivically and then you go to all these different key areas and then you finally return. Right. But we're stuck on this one little theme, right? And it doesn't go to different key areas. And yet no, it, it, it just, is a ahead. incredibly <laughs> seven minutes. And also, I mean, it's, it's like, I think you could say it's almost like Sonata form is itself invaded, you know, like it, it, it this, that theme invades the symphony from outside. Right. I, that's such a great point because it does, there is this sense that when you get to that part, you know, depending on your recording five minutes, six minutes into the piece, it just, it's almost like it comes to a, a halt and something else takes over. Um, it's a its a really bizarre, but just astonishing part of any piece of music I've ever heard. You're forced to stop and just listen. What is going on here? Um, but in, in some ways, it, it, I mean, that's part of the question of how does this become a language is that when a form you know is distorted in that way, you're forced to say what's going on here. So the internal form suddenly shoots out sprouts into the outer world. You know what I mean? And you're suddenly like, wait a second, this must be now referring to something that I have to, you know, I no longer can just say, here is motive A and here is motive B and what are their key areas. Suddenly it's like, no, wait a second, this is a strategy for something else. That's one of the reasons why there's so much argument about him. Hmm. I think like there's an interesting linguistic parallel, which is, um, he writes letters all of his life, and 
the recipients of those letters say that those letters were in many cases ironic. But what does that mean linguistically? So here's, the, here's an example. During World War II, he writes to his friend Isaac Glickman and says, uh, your brother, who's a sculptor, came by to visit. Um, a, a sculptor who's, who's I, think, I think he was in like the uh, Soviet Air Force. And he goes, he is a, we talked about the great uh, future of the Soviet Union and uh, your brother's incredible optimism. And uh, he is a fine young man who shall clearly make a wonderful Soviet citizen, something like that. Now, there's nothing in it that linguistically says that that's bullshit. We know, however, that that brother of Isaac Lickman's was suicidal during that period. So it's extremely unlikely that, that Glickman was supposed to take that at face value. But what does it mean when you can't, you know, I mean, like in that, in that march, occasionally you can say, okay, there are these kind of drunken accents being put on certain beats or whatever. Like you can find something about the idiom to point to, but you know, there are other places in Shostakovich's music where you can't. Like this, the Fifth Symphony that you brought up earlier. The final movement of that, some people like Bernstein, he himself, like Bernstein thought that it was like, this is, um, this is actually a triumph. He ends it very swiftly uh, and, you know, the, um, the individual has somehow triumphed and, you know, there you go. But, you know, there are other friends of Shostakovich's who say, no, that was totally ironic. You have to be an idiot not to, to recognize that, that in fact, it's supposed to be like, someone uh, is it, someone is being beaten, being told, you know, your job is to rejoice. And you stumble forward saying, my job is to rejoice, my job is to rejoice. And, you know, it's not just the fake uh, testimony that, um, that says that. It's also, I mean, friends of Shostakovich's who, who had defected also said that that was supposed to be ironic. So clearly the same text on the page can convince conductors of either tradition. You know, what does that mean? Like, you know, I, I guess the challenge is then, if music means something, like you're saying, deeply emotional, how is it that it can mean two opposite things when the same marks are on the page? Right. And you mentioned the word irony. That's the word that comes to mind when I listen to so much of Shostakovich's music. And especially his music, I haven't found too many examples of this as far as composers go, that, that just permeate their entire works. Because no matter what it is with Shostakovich, like his cello sonata, for example, there are moments that seem that it sounds so boisterous and happy, and yet the feel of it, it's hard to describe, but the feel of it is so sinister. And on one hand, if music is, is simply, you know, a matter of idioms as it sounds, you know, we minor means sad, major means happy, how is it possible that it can mean two things at once? I mean, it's sort of like, uh, at one point, I, I think Mark Twain said in his usual witty way that Wagner's music was actually better than it sounded. <laughs> um, and if there's, you know, meaning behind the sound, because music is nothing but sound. So it, that's just a, just a bizarre thing to try and explain and understand. And at the same time, it was really useful this kind of paradox because you had to in this at this point you had to if you were a composer write in a kind of double speak um and you know and it's it's a great question what does that mean that i mean if you have two people who like leonard bernstein is obviously not uh is not a hack you know if he, <laughs> if he can play this music 
and get triumph out of it. So people at the end feel like, oh my God, you know, yes, something can be achieved. The human is great. Hmm. And then a friend of, um, of Shostakovich's like um, Elena uh, Vishnevskaya can say, no, this, this, that piece to her sounds like someone literally nailing nails into the, the sort of the crucified arms of the Soviet Union. The, you know, the sort of the, their, their repeated notes that go hmm. during that, that the, the final kind of explosive cadence. And um, these are both musicians. These are both intelligent people. And they're both having a deeply emotional reaction to, to the same thing. And their reactions are opposite. So I think that it's a really, really interesting kind of like phenomenon, phenomenological problem. Like what the hell are we supposed to make out of it? <laughs> right. So going back to the form of the music, you, you mentioned at one point, typically you have themes that recur. Uh, a theme in, in the first movement might come back in the, in the fourth movement. In fact, that's what we see in the seventh symphony, that that, that, that initial... I, I liked what you said, uh, the city being proud of itself at the beginning. And then at the end, uh, it being just utter triumph after all of this turmoil. Yeah, there's a beautiful allied forces newsreel that uses that moment. That what they're doing is they're showing uh, Kuzovitsky performing this piece in a very shortened version for some incredible number, I forget, like, well, for literally thousands of soldiers, American soldiers, in the deserts of California, a few days before they're shipped off to North Africa. Wow. And uh, yeah, and and they had um, the Russian ambassador's wife was there to kind of talk about Shostakovich. She lies absolutely about everything concerning his life. Um, but she says he's a soldier and that he's fighting the war and this kind of, <laughs> you know, the, but anyway. But, so the interesting thing is that um, then they take the footage of Kusevitsky uh, performing the end of the symphony, which has exactly as you said, this kind of return to the beginning, which once again, like definitely people in Leningrad itself heard that and found incredible hope in it. You know, we have diaries of people who attended and they said, you know, um, they walked out of that performance very proud, which is another thing I think incidentally is important to register when we're talking about the effect of music in a deeply emotional way that in some ways this is music that saved lives this is music that convinced people that they could win and they were very aware of that anyway the point is in this uh newsreel you know you you hear this this triumphant music at the end and then it's paired with these very moving images of like uh of leningrad during the war and of guys like manning guns and firing into the sky and blackout curtains falling over the windows of leningrad and then finally, finally, as the sort of the big uh, drum roll is going on at the end, you're, dum, 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 you're a Nazi plane with the swastika visible in flames on the ground. <laughs> and, you know, I like, I still can't watch it without getting kind of weirdly teary, despite the fact that I know everything I know about it. Mm. And, um, but once again, like, you can, you can argue for anything you, you want, I suppose, with, with that and meaning. But I think it's really important what you said earlier that like it, part of the function of that moment is a purely syntactical one. You are repeating a theme that opens the first movement. And yet that acquires tremendous meaning um, because you've had a distance of 75 minutes um, you know, since those first moments. Yeah, I've been really astonished at how Shostakovich, you know, while resisting using 
on a macro level using the themes from the exposition in the development still achieves a kind of organic unity throughout the entire movement even in the development that while he doesn't use the themes from the exposition verbatim in fact all of the music in the development section you know that irritating toy-like invasion theme that we talked about is actually derived every part of it is derived from the opening material of the of the piece in a very organic and i would say more sophisticated way more deceptive and shrewd kind of way than simply stating it verbatim and and then developing it motivically and and harmonically after that so let me give you an example of this the movement starts it's the proud statement of the city celebrating itself Right. And the timpani have two notes, five and one, G and C. So you have this immediately, this this interval of a fifth, and you have this idea of dominant to tonic, which, of course, is so common. I mean, you're going to expect this in pretty much every tonal piece, you know, one and five, tonic to dominant, back to tonic. That's sort of this the underlying structure of any tonal music and is such a common and and fundamental element of tonal music that maybe it's not necessarily worth mentioning except for the fact that the timpani plays these notes so obnoxiously in the beginning and and with such repetitiveness that it in fact even though it's five going to one at the where it's placed metrically and never resolving on tonic always going back to five always feeling uneasy it gives a very unstable feeling to this otherwise forthright statement and that interval of the fifth occurs again and again in pretty much every musical idea of the first movement and so we come to the irritating toy-like invasion theme that we talked about in the start of the development. So you have the snare drums and then you have this this little melody. And the melody is derived from the opening material and it ends with this interval of the fifth. Now, at the very end of the piece, when these themes come back, you know, after the pastoral themes, after the, you know, the piece comes to a place of repose, a place of peace, and then the snare drums start up again, and this sinister, shrewd, ominous theme comes back. And you have, again, the statement, that opening statement from the development, and it returns. But then, when it ends, it doesn't end on five as it has throughout the piece. The very last statement of this melody ends on the octave. And so the melody finally is altered slightly to finally come to a place of harmonic repose. And so you have this idea throughout the entire movement that begins with the opening statement of these obnoxious fifths finally coming to a place of rest in the octave at the end and you finally have this place of resolution even in the midst of this sinister context and so you know just with that example we can see that there is a very deep organicism throughout this entire movement right well and then i mean but then also you know it's easy for us to talk about the um the kind of dramaturgy of that first movement and the return to the last movement but then it's a little harder to say, 
what the hell that is going on in the in the second movement, which is a typical kind of like scherzo intermezzo sort of movement. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has its moment. It, you know, it's it's B section in, in a sense where uh, it, where things get kind of uh, more aggressive. Still, it's um, it's really really peculiar, and I think that it frustrates people who want the symphony to be purely narrative. It frustrates them to have something which is so much a kind of a um, a doctrinaire formal structure right there in that second movement. It could be, you know, if you heard that intermezzo from, you know, in, in some other symphony that was, you know, just, it, it, just, it seems, you know, by and large, uh, perfectly friendly. And, but, and then the question is, then do we sit there listening for those moments of dissonance to try to say, ah, but there's that, only because we know the story. Right. Right. Yeah. It, if you if you listen to the piece in a vacuum, would you come to the same conclusions? Probably not. Um, the thing is that no one did. So what do we do with that information? Well, right. Exactly. These American critics, and I think this is so interesting because it really uh, shows the difference between Soviet criticism in that period and American criticism. Soviet criticism critics are all saying this is wonderful because it connects with our circumstances. American critics are all totally pissed because this symphony is getting all this attention and they feel like they that it, its musical qualities considered in some way alone shorn of meaning are to them too slight. Right. So like Virgil Thompson is super shitty about this thing, for example, despite the fact that he wrote all this music that's used for like WPA films that has a lot of the same qualities. So you also have these questions of nationalism, like when we do folk music, uh, it is triumphant and heroic. When the Soviets do folk music, it is it's slavish, and they're just pandering. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you describing these two very contrary reactions. That was also true of the Fifth Symphony, where the people felt like this was their moment to to feel solidarity and and weep. The authorities felt like. It came to a, a, a nice, perfectly conforming to socialist realism, you know, victorious end. So, yeah, it's probably will be a perpetual problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm thankful for that because <laughs> it makes it so much more interesting to listen to. Well, and, and it's a great thing for, I think, for those of us who love this music. It's a, it's a great example to force us to consider all of the things we usually hold dear, like all the questions of, does music mean something to everyone around the world? Well, I mean, the answer is no, it doesn't. You know, like musical gestures mean profoundly different things all over the world. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. It challenges a lot of those ideas. It's not only, regardless of what you think of the notes on the page, it is a symphony that forces us to think in the deepest way about, about the way that, that music addresses human emotion and human suffering. Hmm. And... And speaking of that human suffering, he wrote this in the midst of, what was it, a 900-day siege confined to the city where horrors were just happening all around him. I mean, that was a quarantine that our quarantine did not compare to. Right. And I mean, he got out before, you know, he, he escaped long before, in fact, even a lot of his family uh, took longer to escape than he did. They, yeah. um, but um, I remember that one letter. I think his sister wrote to him, telling telling him that they had eaten the family dog. You no, know, that that freaking killed me. I know. I like. I have these dogs, and I sat there reading that, thinking, "Oh my god, 
No. Yeah, so he escaped after he'd written the, essentially the first three movements. And so the fourth movement was written elsewhere in exile in uh, Quibusha. But, um, but it's interesting because once again, like that second movement, the intermezzo, that is, has a lot of just sort of like delicate, dancey material in it. That was written when he was serving as like a fire warden on the, the roof of, of the conservatory, you know, where he, like his job was, he had to, he wore these sort of these asbestos gloves and he was supposed to, if incendiary bombs fell on the conservatory, he was supposed to pick them up with the gloves and dunk them in these vats of sand, which would then, in fact, heat so much they would, it would boil. Uh, but that would exhaust the chemical, the thermite chemical in the bomb. He never ended up actually having to put out a bomb, but he stood there night after night, apparently, waiting for that to happen. So, you know, it's, it's a great question. Like, I love a lot of Baroque music, and it's really interesting that, for example, during the same period, Henry Purcell and Heinrich Schütz are both composers who are writing sacred music in the same decades, very much influenced by the kind of the Italian Monteverdi school, right? So they're same influences and in everything. Purcell, sitting in England, he writes all this music that is completely like gloomy and depressive in his church music. It's all about like sin and blah, blah, blah. And then Heinrich Schütz, who has the freaking uh, 30 years war going on, <laughs> and, like uh, is, is fleeing in that war and people in his choir are being killed and that kind of thing. He writes these pieces that are totally jubilant and about the glory of, you know, the God that he believed in and all that kind of thing. So it's just, it, it goes beyond a sense of a biography and of the moment. And I don't know, it's, it's a magical art that you people practice. That's <laughs> me, I, I, as someone who is not, I, I'm not musical. That's why to me, it is so powerful to hear what you all do. Hmm. And if it wasn't that, I mean, he, he wouldn't be writing music if it didn't do this for him, you know? One of the most fascinating things to me, maybe because um, I have a lot of orchestra experience, is the the rehearsals by the Leningrad Radio Philharmonic trying to prepare this piece, this massive piece. They are starving. Many of the musicians are collapsing on stage, and yet they soldier on under the direction of the of the conductor which under great under the best conditions an orchestra rehearsal is a laborious and exhausting thing so i cannot imagine these conditions there's actually it's like a 75 minute piece right you you know like more than a hundred instrumentalists yes yeah right and (laughs) there's sort of this subgenre of draconian conductor stories and my favorite, which most of them are legends that you just sort of fill in the blank, whichever conductor you want to talk about at that point. When I was told the story, this was about George Zell, the, the former conductor of the, of the Cleveland Orchestra. And in this story, he's, he's conducting a, a concert on the program is Don Juan, and then a, a shorter piece that's less dramatic for sort of like a palate cleanser. And at the at the last minute, they decide instead of performing Don Juan first, we'll we'll start with the shorter piece. And the the violinist in the back of the first violin section doesn't get the memo. And so the concert begins and they start with this quiet, you know, almost you know, pastoral piece. And, you know, Don Juan is this fiery beginning. You know, any 
string player who is listening to this will probably be bristling right now thinking about having to play that. So the the violinist starts in on Don Juan for, you know, six measures or something before he realizes and looks up completely horror-stricken at in this case George Zell apparently as legend would have it and and you know sheepishly just stops playing fixes his music and continues the concert and afterward tries to escape the concert hall without running into George Zell and George Zell tracks him down and he says to the violinist you know of course that you're fired but I just want to tell you that you're not fired because you began with Don Juan that's a mistake anybody could made you're fired because of how you played Don Juan. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's great. But there's a great moment in the book where, well, great, a dramatic moment where a, a man comes in late to the rehearsal and his excuse is he was burying his wife who had just died. And the conductor says, it doesn't matter if a family member dies, you have to be here on time. You know, and that just takes the draconian conductor genre up to a completely different level, you know? Right. Well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, okay, here's a good story that you as an orchestral player will, uh, will appreciate. I went a couple of years ago to hear the BSO's new Shostakovich cycle to hear, um, to hear them do the fourth live. Now, remember, as we said earlier in the program, the fourth is sort of written in the time of uh, Stalin's uh, great terror and, and is this sort of very long, brutal piece without a lot of evident sort of like bones to it. Anyway, the way that the uh, conductor got a real response out of his orchestra was in a sense to become the dictator. So um, I talked to one of the orchestral players afterwards and they said, well, we arrived, you know, we, you know, we rehearsed the piece, went really well. We arrived for the performance that night and there was a tight sheet on all of our music stands that said, I'm going to be taking this piece considerably more quickly than I did during the rehearsals. <laughs> like that actually captures this sort of the kind of like hysterical fear that that piece is about, you know? Wow. And so like there is something that's sort of, you know, the, the dictator uh, in, um, in the in conductors. Mm. You end the book in just a beautiful place. Maybe to, to wrap up the discussion, I won't give away the ending for readers because I want them to experience the full drama and then come to that ending. I will say, by the way, the audiobook version is just incredible. Um, your reading of it is fantastic. I love the the music that is inserted here and there. So that's a great experience as well as reading it on the page. I've done both. Oh, that's um, great. I, um, yeah, uh, the only thing is that I have to apologize for my pronunciation of Russian names. <laughs> One of the one of the moments that I really appreciated was the the end of the chapter. Life is getting merrier, and I've been paying close attention to your to your craft, your writing craft this time around. And I loved you had talked about in uh, I think the the fourth symphony, and and it's also characteristic of Shostakovich that when there is this peaceful moment, something sinister lurches up. And, and you describe um, from the book, he takes a vacation in Crimea, perhaps there where the mountains met the sea, he actually felt joy. And then you write, it is a shame that to the West, Hitler had turned his malevolent gaze on the Soviet Union. And here he launches a surprise attack on Russia that you're doing 
in that moment the same thing that you had just described of, of Shostakovich. And oh, it's, it's, you know, it's good to have a, a cliffhanger at the end of the chapter. Right. I mean, it could be a whole episode talking about writing craft itself. But I just want to ask, you know, Shostakovich, in some sense, wrote part of this in quarantine. We've just been through a quarantine. So do you have new projects um, that you're working on? What can we look forward to? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I've been working on a, you know, a novel for adults of what my generation, which is sort of Generation X, will be like in 2050 as we prepare uh, to die at a moment when the wealthy among us will, of course, be uploading themselves. Um, and so half of us will be facing mortality. The other half will be facing immortality. What will that be like? So that's sort of what I'm working on uh, right now. That's awesome. Well, I, I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, thank you so much for this discussion. It's been a pleasure to talk about the book about Shostakovich. And I hope maybe we can have you back sometime and, and either continue this discussion or talk about your other books. There's so many other books to talk about. So well, thank you for doing a, um, a podcast on on sort of music and, and ideas. I mm. think it's really exciting. Um, it's such a pleasure to talk to authors as well as musicians or, and talk to authors about music. So... So this is this is a, a real pleasure. So thank you. Thank you.